This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York, broadcasting from the home of low-cost living, the home of low property values. The date is Friday, May 15th, a day when some 16 years ago, in a bicycle club somewhere, at a time far too long ago, I started wrestling. But I am not wrestling now, because now we are some 60 days into the era of the coronavirus. It has been something like 62 days since WWE has run a normal event that was attended by fans. Likewise for AEW, likewise for most promotions across the world. It's been even longer than that for New Japan. New Japan Pro Wrestling that last ran a live event on February 26th. And we heard from New Japan President, CEO, Harold May this week in a some 10 minute long YouTube video that was posted on the New Japan Pro Wrestling YouTube channel where he talks about the current state of New Japan. But also today we'll be getting into the story about Vince McMahon's ongoing legal battle with former XFL CEO Oliver Luck. The XFL, by the way, following bankruptcy, is up for sale. WrestleMania 3 aired on FS1. How did it do in viewership? Plus, how are the big four weekly pro wrestling programs that are airing in the United States still on a weekly basis? How is their viewership holding up? And as you may know, we are occasional astronomers here at WrestleNomics, and we always are concerned with who are the top stars. And one of WWE's top stars, Becky Lynch, won't be wrestling for an indefinite amount of time. And then I think we'll close with reflections on just how much the wrestling business model has been turned on its head in the last few years and and how difficult it would be to, to turn back, even though it would be helpful to do so. Anyway, we'll get into all that. But first, at this point, the two biggest wrestling companies in the United States, WWE and AEW, are running weekly TV in arenas, small buildings, what have you, with no fans. The third biggest wrestling company in the world, New Japan Pro Wrestling, has not ran an event since, my producer's telling me, February 26th, when they last ran a show in Okinawa as part of the New Japan Road Tour. Of course, the big difference between New Japan and the other two, AEW and WWE, is that New Japan doesn't have enormous TV rights fees to collect from their media distribution partners. New Japan does have a TV deal with TV Asahi, who is a part owner of New Japan. But as far as we know, whatever compensation New Japan gets from TV Asahi is not comparable to that of the two major U.S. wrestling companies. And we believe that New Japan largely makes its revenue from live events. That notwithstanding, Harold May said that there are three reasons why New Japan hasn't run these so-called empty arena events yet. The first and foremost reason has been to protect the health and safety of our wrestlers and staff. When broadcasting matches free of spectators for broadcast online, even if we take all the possible precautions to maintain the safety of the venue and do all we can to ensure the staff and the wrestlers are healthy, The fact remains that safety is by no means guaranteed. Data has clearly shown high levels of infection within the cities like Tokyo, and therefore we believe that to stage events, even empty arenas, involves a level of unnecessary risk. The second reason for the event cancellations is connected to the ability to use the venues. Many venues in Japan are run by the municipal and or prefectural governments, with their management deciding to forbid events from taking place in a bid to combat the coronavirus. Additionally, as the pandemic has escalated, these venues have closed their doors even to empty arena presentations. Since New Japan Pro Wrestling does not own or operate venues of its own, this has led to many cancellations. Lastly, is New Japan Pro Wrestling's corporate social responsibility. New Japan is an industry leader, both in Japan and worldwide. 
With that position comes a great responsibility. As a global society holds a magnifying glass up to us, it behooves New Japan to act to the highest possible ethical standards. We are currently living under a national state of emergency declared by the Japanese government and have been strongly advised to exercise the maximum of self-restraint when it comes to our activities as individuals and as a business. To hold even empty arena matches in these circumstances would reflect badly on ourselves and our industry, and we will not trade our reputation as a positive force of, for social good, even in the wake of harsh economic realities. May went on to talk about something called goodwill that New Japan has with its fans, but he also noted that the two-day Wrestle Kingdom in early January allowed New Japan to be in the black, insinuating that it allowed New Japan to be profitable so far in the year of 2020. It is the goodwill that we have fostered with our audience, our partners, and society that led to Wrestle Kingdom 14 this year becoming a tremendous success, allowing us to continue operating in the black. That goodwill must be protected at all costs. So what is May saying there? Is he saying that maybe being too eager to run live events and being less concerned about safety might harm the goodwill that New Japan has with its fans, or maybe that these empty arena shows, as the United States TV viewership of wrestling bears out, isn't very compelling to wrestling fans. Is he saying any of that? I don't know. But he did say that online merchandise sales for New Japan have been good. They introduced a new online merchandise shop called Tokun Global last month. And he said that New Japan World subscribers, that is New Japan's subscription video on demand service, subscribers are holding up. Even with no live matches being broadcast, New Japan World subscriptions rates have not fallen significantly, and online sales of our merchandise have been extremely positive. All that said, though, and what May said earlier in the video about protecting goodwill and New Japan apparently being hesitant to run empty building matches, May did say that the first part of New Japan's return to running live events again will include a phase where New Japan runs empty building matches, but only after certain standards are met. As for the future, the first step for New Japan returning to action will indeed be empty arena matches with no fans in attendance. This step will be taken when and only when the state of emergency restrictions are lifted, the number of new coronavirus infections declines, and when matches can take place in a properly disinfected and safe settings. Once these conditions are met, matches will be held in Japan as well as in our Los Angeles dojo in the United States. The next step after that will be to begin welcoming fans to attend events. For this step to be taken, our wrestlers and staff will undergo rigorous health checks. In addition, fans will be subject to thermographic temperature checks on, upon entry, masks will be compulsory, and venues will be thoroughly disinfected and properly ventilated with the elimination of smoking areas, for example, and spaces will be left between the seats to comply with social distancing. Sorry, smokers. But no mention there on whether New Japan has any plans or hopes to test uh, any staff or wrestlers for COVID-19 before they perform or before the event happens. According to the Twitter account of AEW CEO Tony Khan, AEW personnel were tested for COVID-19 uh, two weeks ago. No word on it if that has continued uh, this most recently past week. UFC over the weekend also ran in Florida. UFC's pay-per-view UFC 249 uh, in Jacksonville reportedly tested everyone involved, which resulted in one fighter testing positive for COVID-19. Although a New York Times article that came out on Tuesday was critical of UFC's approach, noting the UFC event lacked social distancing as well as masks. WWE, which is continuing to produce three weekly TV shows, Raw, SmackDown, and NXT. And as far as we know, they have not 
administered any COVID-19 tests for personnel associated with those events. At least that's according to Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer, who said he's not aware of one test that WWE has administered on his audio show on Thursday. I reached out to W Media Relations to ask about COVID-19 testing and whether W had consulted recently with any epidemiologists, infectious disease experts, or local public health officials to get advice on their health and safety plan. But I did not receive a response as of the time of this recording. And then from there, in other news... As we talked about previously on WrestleNomics Radio, former XFL CEO is suing Vince McMahon for wrongful termination. This week, we learned through the Connecticut District Court that Oliver Luck was set to earn an annual salary of $5 million, plus a $2 million guaranteed bonus. That bonus to be paid annually over five years. Oliver Luck had entered a contract for five years, $5 million per year, $2 million annual bonus. The termination letter to Oliver Luck also entered the public record. The letter is written by Vince McMahon's lawyer, Jerry McDivitt, with KL Gates letterhead. That's the law firm that McDivitt belongs to. The letter is dated April 9th, 2020. McMahon's justification for terminating Oliver Luck seems to center around Luck's decision to sign player Antonio Callaway. The letter reads, During your tenure at XFL, there were numerous instances of gross negligence in the performance of your duties, including, but not limited to, the manner and methods used by you in obtaining venues for the XFL to locate teams, and in connection with the negotiation of term sheets and venue agreements. Additionally, you disregarded the lawful directives of Mr. McMahon not to sign or employ players with questionable backgrounds. In one prominent example of your failure to abide by the known policy of not signing players with problematical backgrounds and history, you not only decided to enter into a contract with Antonio Callaway, but also decided to give him a very substantial signing bonus of $125,000. No such bonus was offered or given to other wide receivers who did not have problematical histories. Yes, the, the letter does say, use the word problematical. It goes on, as you knew, when you caused him to be signed in violation of XFL policies, Mr. Callaway had a history of being suspended for drug use in his last season in college and had drug-related suspensions while in the NFL. You were aware he had tested positive for marijuana at the 2018 NFL Scouting Combine and had been cited for possession of marijuana while driving with a suspended license. You also knew of reports that police had found bullets and a gun part in his car. Insofar as his drug history and problems with police were concerned, you also knew of reports that he had been cited for misdemeanor marijuana possession and drug paraphernalia by Florida police in 2017. Lastly, you knew of reports that he had been suspended for the entire 2017 season while in college for allegedly using stolen credit card information to fund bookstore accounts. He also had sexual assault allegations made against him prior to your decision to employ him. Having hired Mr. Calloway in disregard of XFL policies, you then failed to timely carry out Mr. McMahon's directive to terminate his services once he learned what you had done. As a result of your disregard of Mr. McMahon's instruction to terminate him immediately, Calloway continued to practice and injured his knee in a practice session. Thereafter, the XFL had attended significant costs for surgery on his injury and now faces potential workman's compensation payments to him of an unknown duration. The net effect of your decision to disregard both the league policy and Mr. McMahon's direction to terminate Callaway's contract immediately is that it cost well in excess of six figures with costs continuing to accrue. So we'll pause there. Vince McMahon clearly not happy about an apparent hire that uh, Luck had made of, of this, this wide receiver, Antonio Callaway, who uh, has had some legal issues. There are uh, ESPN.com uh, articles to, to back up some of the, the allegations that are mentioned in this letter. If you'll recall, it was one of the sort of founding ideas around the restart of the XFL is that it would not just be about the quality of play 
but the quality of the player. According to Vince McMahon, this idea that I think football fans are, they like football, but they think the, the players are uh, uh, different from them in some ways. Or, I mean, they have legal problems. So anyway, the, the letter also notes that uh, McMahon alleges that he's not happy about how Oliver Luck didn't really do any work after the XFL suspended its season on March 13th. The letter goes on to read, and quote, We further note that on March 13th, after the XFL had to cancel the rest of the season due to COVID-19, you stated that you were going back to Indiana and expressed uncertainty as to how long the pandemic would last. Since then, except for occasional emails, you have been disengaged from the XFL and its efforts to deal with the complications of the COVID-19 pandemic and its efforts to determine if there was a viable path forward for the XFL. You have not initiated so much as a single phone call to Mr. McMahon to report on any work-related activities, nor exhibited any of the vigor and work ethic required of a CEO of a startup enterprise in these trying times. You certainly have not devoted substantially all of your business time to the performance of your duty since March 13th, which itself is grossly negligent under the circumstances. So anyway, end quote. Um, in total, Oliver Luck is looking to get $23.8 million from Vince McMahon, as well as an attachment or garnishment of McMahon's assets, plus an order requiring McMahon to disclose his assets sufficient to satisfy the remedy. According to Sports Business Journal, Oliver Luck says that the texts with McMahon that he has will prove that he was fully engaged in the league business until the very end. So more on that story as it develops. Speaking of the XFL, according to Axios, Axios reported last week, Thursday, that investment bank Hulihan Loki, I, th I think I'm, I'm pronouncing that right, Hulihan Loki, not to be confused with the former Ring of Honor world champion, is managing the process uh, to sell the XFL. This comes one month after the XFL filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Letters of intent are due by June 12th, and formal bids are due July 6th. So, act fast. According to a pitch deck that was obtained by Axios, the XFL claims that it was on track to generate $46 million in revenue in its debut season before the season was cut short by the COVID-19 pandemic. They claim to have an average game attendance of 20,000 and an average viewership per game of 1.9 million viewers. However, both attendance and viewership were declining as the season went along. In viewership this week, on Tuesday night on FS1, a replay of WrestleMania 3 from 1987, an event that was attended by allegedly 93,173 fans or 78,000, depending on who you ask. WrestleMania 3 was replayed on FS1. We don't know what the viewership was, but the WrestleMania Rewind episode that aired the hour before at 7 p.m. Eastern was viewed by 157,000 viewers, a .04 in the 18-49 demo, that ranking 133rd on its night. The episode of W Backstage that aired on FS1 right after the airing of WrestleMania 3, viewed by 173,000 viewers, a .05 in the demo, ranking at 119. So the WrestleMania 3 airing itself did not rank, in, at least in the demo, I would imagine it did somewhere between, somewhere in the neighborhood of what the Rewind episode did and what the Backstage episode did, so probably well under 200,000, if not lower than that. Again, that was on FS1, but compare this to uh, the WrestleMania replays that were aired on ESPN. ESPN, a stronger network, for sure. But in the weeks leading up to WrestleMania on ESPN, uh, WrestleMania 30 was re-aired with a viewership of 830,000 viewers, 0.31 in the demo. The following week, a replay of WrestleMania 32 did its 720,000 viewers, 0.25 in the demo. Replay of WrestleMania 35, 421,000 viewers, 0.14 in the demo. 
Again, that on ESPN. Uh, diminishing returns there, but probably multiples of what WrestleMania 3 did on FS1. For whatever it's worth. I don't have any strong reads on that. FS1 is, is not as strong of a network as ESPN. FS1, I'm sure, is starred for some sports-like content to fill their time slots with in a, in a time where there's no live sports happening. In the world of new pandemic content, WWE Raw bounced back from probably its lowest viewership of all time on May 4th to come back at nearly 2 million viewers again on May 11th. Viewership up to 1.9 one nine million, 0.57 in the demo. And this is the episode where Becky Lynch announced that she is pregnant and will be taking time off and vacating the Raw women's title. So we'll watch the trajectory of Raw going forward, but AEW Dynamite and NXT do not do well on Wednesday night. AEW did its lowest key demo and viewership performance to date. 654,000 viewers a 0.23 in the demo. Still ahead of NXT at 604,000 viewers, 0.15 in the demo. But the combined Wednesday night viewership for both of those programs was the lowest to date. So what I'm doing there is I'm combining the NXT and the AEW viewership for every Wednesday night where both programs were on. So there are some weeks where only one program was on, particularly the beginning of NXT's run, and then there's a holiday. I think it's Christmas. It is Christmas where there was no AEW Dynamite. But for any Wednesday night that has had that head-to-head airing of NXT and AEW, the combination of both of those programs, their viewership combined, was at its lowest point yet. The total viewership this past Wednesday for AEW and NXT combined, 1,258,000 viewers Combined key demo, 0.38. Interesting note, though, and sort of an illustration of just how far askew things have have gone here. Last week, not this week, but last week, when Raw did its record low, then of course on Monday, then on Wednesday, NXT and AEW combined hit a 0.46 in the demo, the exact same rating in the demo as Raw two days earlier. Now, Raw is a three-hour program. NXT and AEW are two-hour programs each that are running head-to-head at the same time. But I think it is correct to say, on average, that week, last week, but on average, minute by minute, because that's my understanding of what the viewership is measuring here. It's not just measuring how many people watch the program for a few minutes, but it's averaging... on a minute-by-minute basis, how many people are watching this program. So anyway, point is, Raw's P18-49, equal to that of NXT and AEW combined in the same week. So I think it is correct to say that NXT plus AEW had about as many people in the ages of 18-49 to watching, on average, minute-by-minute, as did Raw two days prior. And in fact, Showbiz Daily doesn't report the demographic males from ages 18 to 34, but we do believe that that number, that metric is reported internally in AEW and probably WWE, probably provided by Nielsen ultimately. And AEW edged out Raw in the male 18 to 34 demographic. So again, not NXT and AEW combined, but just AEW in males 18 to 34 edged out raw males 18 to 34. So is that a sign of things to come? I don't know. I was uh, feeling a little bit more certain earlier this week before the raw numbers came out, but raw is on a trajectory in this pandemic timeline that we've been in since the middle of March. It is at a, a rate of decline that is on trajectory to decline at a sharper rate than AEW. But watch to see if AEW continues to edge out Raw in that male's 1834 demographic. If that keeps up, I think the next demographic dominoes to follow would be people 18 to 34, followed by males 12 to 34, 
just sort of this is a path of least resistance here. Males 18 to 49 following that. People 18 to 49 would be the big one following that. And then people 25 to 54 following that. And I think the hardest demographics for AEW to get closer to WWE's viewership would be the female demographics. And then, of course, the people 50 plus. WWE has a lockdown on those folks. If you want to sell some silver and gold, if you got to sell that heartburn medicine, some non-sterile anti-inflammatory drugs, well, Raw and SmackDown may be a destination for you eventually. Maybe even NXT. But again, why be pessimistic about uh, the state of wrestling TV viewership, particularly WWE? Again, I think WWE has done a lot to damage the what, what Harold May calls the goodwill uh, relationship with fans. Harold May talking earlier about the goodwill that New Japan, according to him, has with their fans. I don't want to get into a thing where I repeat myself too much, but I think the average WWE fan, if they are still engaged at all, has been sent a lot of messages that the company doesn't care very much about what they like and what they prefer. And if they are still engaged, their engagement is more loose and more easy to dislodge. And this, uh, this break point, which I kind of talked about last week, that's being offered up by this unusual circumstance of COVID-19 disrupting everyone's lives and disrupting the presentation of W programming. I think could have long-term effects that that results in WWE not regaining a lot of the viewership that it's losing right now. And that may be so for AEW as well. But I think AEW in its shorter, much shorter history so far has a, a better relationship with its fans and is in itself, part of its appeal is that it is an alternative to WWE. But besides that, I think what confounds WWE's situation is that they have a lack of star power now, even more so with the indefinite absence of Becky Lynch. John Cena has been gone as a full-timer since roughly 2015. WWE spent, spent half a decade trying to get Roman Reigns to fill that place. Roman Reigns never became quite the star that John Cena became but still a, a substantial star that adds a lot of value to their events. But he's been out since just before WrestleMania. We talked about that last time. He did an interview with TMZ last week saying his absence wasn't even due so much to his health history with leukemia, but more due to his concern for the health of his family, just having had two twins. So no clear indication of when he'll be back. Maybe not until there's a vaccine. Maybe not until we're in a situation where it's safe enough to have fans in the building again. So no John Cena full-time, regardless of the pandemic. No Roman Reigns now at the moment. Brock Lesnar even is gone for at least now. So who, who after those names is WWE's top star? One of the names I think you could make an argument for would be Becky Lynch. Now she will be out indefinitely. She'll be out for at least many months to come. And who knows if she ever returns to being a, a full-time wrestler again, or if she chooses to spend more time being a mother or chooses to spend more time uh, acting. Becky Lynch told TMZ Sports recently that The Rock uh, has been helpful to her and she has uh, gotten in touch with an agent uh, through The Rock. That, that, that is Dwayne Johnson for the, the casual fans out there. So with John Cena out, with Brock Lesnar out of the picture, at least for the moment, with Roman Reigns out of the picture, with Becky Lynch out of the picture, who's WWE's top star who's appearing regularly on TV right now? Well, Bill, Bill Goldberg, but Bill Goldberg's out of the picture for now. Was never really a, a regular weekly Undertaker, a big star, not a regular. So who's left? The, the two champions are, are Drew McIntyre and Braun Strowman. There's Bray Wyatt, AJ Styles, 
Charlotte. Yeah, the WWE roster is very talented. They've got arguably the most talented roster that they've ever had. But why don't they feel like stars? I'll let you answer that. So the, th those are some large reasons why I'm pessimistic about how WWE's business is going to continue to generate consumer metrics uh, for the foreseeable future. And that's why I'd be worried about how well WWE's actually going to be able to recover from whatever further decline in popularity it suffers as a result of coronavirus. And then from there, I put out a call for questions earlier today earlier today, like an hour ago. So we'll go through those now. We have a question from Dave, but I think I want to answer Dave's question last because I think that that will relate into my, uh, my closing rant. So we'll go to Michael's question first. Michael says, it's a wild thing to think about considering how quickly the industry changes. But in a best case scenario world, where do you see companies like New Japan, AEW, Impact, etc.? in five years. Will the gap between them and WWE decrease or widen? Well, I think the gap, the financial gap between WWE and the others will widen. WWE will become more, will generate more revenue over the next five years than they are now. And the other companies will probably generate more revenue, but not at the same rate over the next five years. But at the same time, I think the audience gap will get smaller. And I don't know what's going to happen with media rights in five years when WWE and AEW may have to renegotiate around the same time or not. But whatever the case, whatever happens with cord cutting or whatever happens with pay TV and whatever happens with over-the-top streaming, I don't think the value of live content is going to dramatically decrease. And if anything, it's going to continue to increase. But WWE will continue to be advantaged by having the global presence and having the longer, stronger history uh, than its wrestling competitors by multiples. New Japan is arguably an older company, but, but on a global basis, WWE has been there far longer. I don't know if New Japan will ever understand what what really needs to be done as far as taking on the U.S. market from a media standpoint rather than a more heavily live event-oriented standpoint. But I, I guess I do think the gap between the audience size or the audience engagement, particularly in the U.S., that of WWE and maybe AEW will continue to narrow over time, including the next five years. I think the coronavirus pandemic has sped things up quite a bit. I, th I think we're going to come out on the other end of a coronavirus pandemic. Let's say this is something that lasts for 12 months. I think we're going to have gone through in 12 months an audience evolution in terms of the share of who's got the audience the most or who's getting what portion of the audience's time. We're going to have gone through something like two hours, two hours, two years of what would have been non-coronavirus time, if that makes sense. In other words, I think we'll be at the end of coronavirus when there's a vaccine and when there are normal live events again. At that point, we will be kind of in a similar place to where we would have been much later had there been no coronavirus crisis. So thanks for the question. And from Rob, Rob writes, based on financial numbers, would WWE do shows outside the state of Florida if, let's say, a place such as Minneapolis, uh, estimate-wise, usually it has a capacity of 18,000 at the Target Center, but they have to cut it down to 4,500 to 8,000. Thanks for the question. So I think I think Rob's asking about social distancing. I, th I think you're saying you, you take a, a normal uh, NBA size arena and you uh, cut the capacity in half to serve social distancing. 
I doubt that WWE has a real answer to that question yet. It, it, but it does sound something like what Harold May was talking about in the clips that we played earlier in this show, where maybe eventually once conditions are at a certain standard, they may be willing to go to other venues, not in the Performance Center, not in Florida. But the thing is, it's going to be so expensive to run probably the, the Target Center, for example, and maybe uh, venue rental costs will be lower, but still a great deal of the cost that's incurred is not just from the rental itself, but from the, the production expense of running live TV. And that probably wouldn't be minimized even if the capacity of the building was minimized and even if the rent was discounted. And it's kind of just a lot cheaper if they say started to bring people into, you know, bring fans into the performance center at some point, whether they're paying or not, you've got people in there and you've got people making noise and it's maybe enough to make it feel like a normal wrestling event again, which brings us to our next question from Dave. And I think this is a good, a good segue. Dave writes, could WB or any other wrestling company have a monetarily successful run as say a Las Vegas attraction with weekly live or taped shows. And I think that's an interesting thought. Um, thanks for the question, Dave. Now there are some things that are, that are important to continuing to run, you know, post coronavirus world. There's some things that, that are really important for a wrestling company to continue to do. And that's be taping and broadcasting live and to have a lot of wrestling fans there that, that give you an energy to your event that's appealing to watch and that's fun for people to attend and that performers can feed off of. And it, it does help to go around the country or around the world and tour and build your fan base. On the other hand, it does seem like there are some lessons to learn from this experiment here where WWE is running in the performance center in a building that they own where costs per event are very low compared to the production cost of running in a normal venue. There's no additional venue rental cost. The, the production cost is probably much lower. We've seen AEW run out of uh, Daly's Place and out of QT Marshall's school in Georgia. And now part of why it's so much cheaper, which I think is what you're alluding to in your question here, is that they are, they are taping, uh, they're doing a, a taping set where they're taping a set of shows all in one sitting or in a, in a you know, con, you know con, con concentrated number of days. And that saves on a lot of expenses when it comes to equipment and ring assets and travel costs for personnel and talent. So if we could imagine such a scenario in Las Vegas or who knows, maybe with WWE's friends at NBC Universal and Universal Studios. Now I'm not saying this is likely, but let's imagine where you tape TV live every week at a particular location that you don't have to load in and load out of, where you're maybe at a, at a center of, a, of tourist attractions. So it's not as if you're trying to draw from the local crowd week after week or from the local population week after week. And you can still be selling merchandise. Maybe you're even selling tickets. Of course, you're probably sharing a lot of it with whoever's grounds you're running it on. The ideal situation would be to run it on on a WWE theme park that you already own or something, but that's clearly not available. But the point is production expenses will be much lower. And then your, in your TV rights fees would still be apparently escalating, which is what we believe to be the nature of WWE's TV rights deals, maybe AEW's as well. And I think it's more likely than not that the value of live sports like content is going to continue to increase over time. So the point is your TV episodes per episode become more profitable. And I don't know if that's a year round strategy, but maybe that's a term or a season of your total year. Now that's a, there's, there's kind of a non-monetary cost there in that when you're not in a major sports arena, you don't look as a major league. So there is that, but maybe there is some lesson that will be learned as a result of running all these events uh, in studio-like settings here. Which brings me to the, my final points that I want to get to here about how the wrestling business has changed inversely 
in the last 20 years or so, and certainly in the last 30 years or so, to we're now at the point where, at least in WWE's case, the live event division of their business is not profitable. Running house shows, by all indications from looking at their finances, is not profitable, except for the most peak events, like WrestleMania. That part of WWE's business is essentially being redefined as a loss leader that allows WWE to create and sell video. And no longer is it that you run, run a TV show in a studio or you shoot TV to promote the live event. In your TV show, you make very little, if any, money on. Sometimes in these previous eras, you're even paying for the, the programming. You're paying for the time slot so that you can promote tickets, maybe even pay-per-views. Toward today, yes, you're charging consumers for tickets, coronavirus notwithstanding, but house shows don't make money and maybe even TV tapings on their own before you start selling the video of them in themselves don't make money or don't make profit, that is. The cost of running a high production value live event in the United States has become so expensive that it's very difficult to not lose money unless through doing that live event, the video is monetized either through TV rights fees, maybe TV ad revenue sharing, maybe subscription video on demand, or maybe even pay-per-view. And the more I learn about the wrestling business and the more I try to study it and take in what's been happening to the wrestling business in the last six years or so, the more it seems like pay-per-view was a, was a really valuable business. And it's not completely gone. But the more it looks like the W Network and its particular ed- execution maybe was not a very good thing for the wrestling business. And the W Network was, was really, uh, in large part, what attracted me to take an interest in, in wrestling business. But since February 2014 and New Japan followed in its footsteps in December 2014 with New Japan World, but largely with WWE taking the lead, since February 2014, they've basically taught wrestling consumers that there are no events that are really worth more than $10 for a TV viewing experience. And that might, might not be so bad if George Barrios's gamble had paid off and, and that you could really could capture three to four million steady paid subscribers as his models projected according to whatever survey data he had. They should probably sue whoever did the, those uh, consumer surveys. I don't know, maybe. But obviously, three to four million subscribers never happened. The all-time peak for paid subscribers was 1.8 million on the day after WrestleMania in 2018. The paid subscriber number after WrestleMania this year was 1.6 million, down 200,000. Now, it doesn't help that in the meantime, since the W Network launched, that Vince McMahon has booked the company into oblivion and has failed to develop any serious stars that have significantly helped the company. And the, the company's relationship with its fans has been seriously damaged. But thinking back on these last few months, these, these uh, first few months of 2020, George Barrios and Michelle Wilson, the former co-presidents of WB, they were uh, apparently fired in late January, as listeners may know. And they were the, the executives who, it seems, put together the pitch for the WB Network and sold Vince on the idea that we're going to cannibalize pay-per-view we're going to make this bold move and disrupt ourselves. And it may be a big cost now and it's an investment, but eventually we're going to make even more money than we would be making otherwise. And that never panned out. Again, WWE's decline in popularity doesn't help. Its failure to develop stars doesn't help. But I've found good evidence based on things like Google searches, which seem somewhat predictive of what W pay-per-view buys would have been in a non-W network world, or even if W had continued to have similar pay-per-view business as it had had in the pre-network years, the W network never became as profitable as the pay-per-view business was. And on top of that, WWE invested millions 
WWE reported a negative net income year in the year 2014 due to WWE Network investment with the idea that the network would be so profitable that eventually the network would pay for all that investment and WWE would make all that money back. Now, again, it's impossible to know exactly what would have happened in an alternate timeline, but it's pretty clear to me that the network was never significantly more profitable than the pay-per-view business was. And it certainly wasn't so much more profitable than the pay-per-view business was that it made back the money lost. That is the opportunity cost of launching the network. Now, all that beside the point, that's just WB-centric stuff. On top of that, the network launch was very influential, both in terms of WB and in terms of the other wrestling companies in its space. The advent of the W Network encouraged many others to launch subscription video streaming services. But more than that, it encouraged other wrestling companies to have a price point that couldn't be higher than WWE's. I mean, you can't, you can't be a secondary wrestling brand, it seemed, and, and offer a monthly price point that's less than WWE's $9.99. And further, the advent of the WWE Network taught wrestling consumers at large that the value of a peak event, like a pay-per-view, even WrestleMania, peak event viewing is worth $10 at most, not 60 Meanwhile, as, as pro wrestling, and especially WWE, I think, continued to veer down the path away from being sports-like and things like UFC and boxing stayed on that track, UFC continued to charge a $60, $65 pay-per-view price point. UFC even more recently was able to leverage a deal with ESPN+. Plus where not only they're offering pay-per-views with a high $60 price point or whatever it is, but it's behind a $5 per month paywall. Not to mention, you've got Mayweather fights out there for $100. Anyway, the, the point is, I think the W Network had such an influence on the wrestling market and on other wrestling companies' strategies that it it, it took the effectiveness of, of the thing that could go a long way toward making a peak wrestling event profitable. That is charging a per event pay-per-view price well in excess of $10, more like $50 or $60. And it undercut that by a fraction. It taught the audience that this type of product is worth far less. And New Japan has reinforced that as well themselves with New Japan World, 999 yen per month all the events. And in New Japan's defense, at least pay-per-view business wasn't as big of a business domestically for them as pay-per-view business was uh, for WWE domestically and in, in other countries. Now, is it impossible to sell a wrestling pay-per-view? No. AEW and to a lesser extent, Ring of Honor and maybe others are still able to do some pay-per-view business. AEW is still selling $50 pay-per-views reportedly selling about 100,000 of them per event. AEW does not have a subscription video streaming service, at least not yet, but WWE and, and New Japan do. And I don't know how they can put the genie back in the bottle when they've undercut themselves. Particularly, this would be helpful for, for New Japan in their wish to expand globally and become even more popular in the US. But not putting events on the streaming platform, which is where your subscriber base has been taught to expect every single one of your events. Or in the case of WWE's, they've been taught to expect all pay-per-views to be live streamed on the network. To take those events off and to put them on pay-per-view at, at, at multiples of a price point of what they're paying monthly risks alienating those fans and risks alienating those subscribers. And if you're, if you're New Japan, it risks, say you do a US event and you don't live stream it on New Japan World, you risk alienating your domestic Japanese audience. 
So again, it's kind of one of those problems. I've, I've identified the problem. I'm not sure what the better alternative is, although you can see why Vince McMahon is talking about selling, it sounds like, the pay-per-views off of the network and putting them onto a major streaming service. Although I think there's there's a, a hidden cost in a breakpoint that would be presented by taking pay-per-views off the network and putting them on a streaming player, perhaps for a higher monthly price point, or maybe even for a for a, an a la carte price point, a pay-per-view price point again. The moral of the story here is that in, I don't know if it was 2012, 2013, George Barrios and Michelle Wilson succeeded at making this pitch to Vince McMahon to go it alone, to disrupt pay-per-view based on the bet that they could attract so many monthly subscribers that it would be more profitable than the current pay-per-view model at that time. And in doing so, some six years later, it's apparent that WWE only made things more difficult for themselves in terms of achieving profitability. And wider than that, and actually maybe to WWE's benefit, since they're the ones who can best withstand financial hardship at this point. The behavior taught to fans that peak events are not worth $60, they're worth $10. And that everyone needs a subscription streaming service that has a monthly price point that's under $10. That apparent wisdom has made things, in reality, we can see in hindsight, more difficult financially for WE and for its competitors. So, one can see uh, upon reflection, and if I was somebody who had a more granular view of W's finances, if I say it was the CEO of W and had access to anything that I wanted to, you can see now why, if I'm on the right track, why George Barrios and Michelle Wilson no longer work for WWE. So, that's all I have for this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network for being my media distribution partner. If you want to support WrestleNomics, after all that, guess what? Of course, I've got a, I've got a video streaming service to sell you. Uh, I've been working with independentwrestling.tv. You can subscribe to independentwrestling.tv. Get a five-day free trial. Use the promo code WrestleNomics when you sign up. If your trial rolls over to become a paid subscription, I get a cut of it. You can sign up at independentwrestling.tv. It's also available on Google Play, on the App Store, on Amazon Fire TV, on Roku, on Apple TV, on your internet browser. You can get access to thousands of events, including from promotions like Game Changer Wrestling, Beyond Wrestling, AIW, Freelance, and many, many more. A lot of my ESW Empire State Wrestling stuff is on there as well. And thanks for your questions. I think that went well. You can follow WrestleNomics at WrestleNomics. You can follow me at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston. I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>